0: Welcome to First Baptist Church. We are so glad that you've decided to join us this morning and we do trust and pray that God will speak to you in the ways that you need to hear from him. We trust and pray that you've had a good week coming out of the 4th of July holiday. Can we just, can we all agree on something this morning that Monday is the worst day on which to have Independence Day? Can we all agree on that? Like, who, who decided that? There should be, like, we make federal laws for lots of other stupid stuff. We need a federal law that if 4th of July happens on Monday, that Tuesday is off. Because who stays up late to watch fireworks and then goes in to run a machine? I just think that we should consider that, and maybe we as First Baptist Church can, like, start a letter-writing campaign, start sending stuff to congressmen, because that is just junk. Anywho. I digress. So some words just go together. Some words just go together. You you almost struggle when you hear the one to not say and the other one. I'm going to give you some examples and we'll see how this goes. If I say peanut butter and Jelly. jelly. Macaroni and milk and cheese and Sprinkles. I was going with sprinkles there, but good for you. Like, apparently y'all haven't watched uh, the, the movie with the bluebird. bird. Uh, what's it called? Rio, right? That's what I say all the time. Cheese and sprinkles. Anywho, that one's just, maybe that's just me and a few others. I did hear a couple, so I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Another one that comes to my mind, though, is this. Law and, law and order. That, that, that one, those two words are a little bit interesting amongst the others. They sound like they go well together, but what's interesting about those two in particular is that while one is meant to create the other, right? Law is meant to create and maintain order. Law is only necessary because there is disorder, right? The the, the irony or the paradoxical, the paradoxical nature of it is that the the one is only present because the other is not it's not like peanut butter and jelly where the two naturally go together and they are friends. And without the one, the other just doesn't quite taste right. It's not, it's not like macaroni and cheese, again, where the two have a, a harmonious relationship. The reality of law and order is that they are at tension with one another. And the one is only present because of the lack of presence of the other. And they are in conflict to one degree with one another. Law is only necessary because of the disorder in the world. And we could go a step further biblically, and we would say that law is only necessary because of the disorder of the human heart and the divergent actions that it produces. That's what we're going to look at this morning. The fact is that that struggle is real. That struggle, that that tension between... uh, wanting to be live an ordered life and the disorder that our life naturally produces because of the sin nature within us. We're, this is a popular passage in Romans 7 where Paul talks about the reality of that struggle and the conflict that goes on within us where, where we know what we want to do, we know what we should do, but for whatever reason we can't seem to get it right. What we, what we, what we hate is what we do and what we love, that we don't do as it comes to right and wrong. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. And Paul says this. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. But now by dying to once bound us, we have been released from the law, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death. So that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature." For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner to the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Would you join me in prayer? as we unpack this passage this morning. Father God, I thank you so much for your goodness and your grace to us. I thank you for your great love with which you've loved us, God. I thank you for the calling that you have placed on each of our lives as you have reached out to us to draw us deeper into relationship with you. God, may we receive from you that calling. May we follow you. May we walk with you. May we be who it is you've called us to be. God, speak to us this morning in these moments as we look through your word. Draw us close to yourself, in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've got this passage where Paul talks about law and and the disorder that it reveals within us, the disorder that it, in effect, brings about uh, through the inspiration that it pushes upon us. But he talks at the beginning here about marriage. And and I want to be honest with you, I was this week old when I realized that Paul wasn't really talking about marriage. The fact of the matter is, I've, I've heard this passage preached before, and maybe you have as well. And, and when people generally, when pastors generally talk it, about this passage, they, they dissect and pull apart verse, verses 1 and, and following, usually down to about 3, and they use it as a defense for how marriage and divorce should work. But Paul isn't Paul isn't giving a doctrine on marriage here. He's using marriage as an illustration to show our relationship with sin, the problematic nature of it, and how release comes about through Jesus Christ. And he's pointing out the reality that we have to have this disconnect. And that it's through connection to Christ's death that we're freed to marry ourselves to a new love. Connection to Christ's death frees us to marry ourselves to a new love. Union with Christ's death frees us from our unhealthy connection, our unhealthy relationship with the law and the sin that it reveals within us. Now, if we look at verse one, Paul talks about speaking of those who has the law. He says, "Do you not know, brothers and sisters? For I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives." Now, when he talks about law, our natural tendency is to think that Paul is then referencing back to the Old Testament law. And he he does use the two interchangeably. He goes back and forth with them. And to this point in, in Romans, he has for the most part been talking about the Old Testament law, the Levitical law that God had given to his people so that they could live appropriately as his people. But in this case, the wording that Paul uses indicates that this passage is broader in scope. That Paul isn't specifically or only talking about the Old Testament law, though it is, it is included in what he talks about. First, the, the reason that we know Paul isn't talking about the Old Testament law is that Paul doesn't use the definite article in this verse in the Greek. Now, the definite article is, is quite simply the word the. When Paul is talking about law in general, it's just law we know that law does this now if he is if he's talking about the law of god it is the law of god he specifies that, that there's a, there's something special about this other law there is law in general but then there is the law that god gave us god's very word and in this case paul is just talking about law in general now we we know that that rome was the seat of legislative power in the 1st century And for a great many years. I mean, Rome and and Greek culture is what created our idea of law and governance. So these people in Rome, when he says, I'm speaking to people who know the law, these people, these Roman Christians, they knew the law. They understood how law worked every bit as much as their Hebrew brothers and sisters Second, we know that Paul isn't just talking about a specific aspect of religious law because Paul goes on to talk about civil relationship. He talks about this this civil connection, this civil law and marriage. Marriage is one of those things that historically in in a broad variety of cultures has been a civil agreement between a husband and a wife that that carries with it various tax advantages and, and the government views them in a certain way And in that, there there is also a spiritual overtone that has been brought into it. I think of even our weddings today, because Paul goes on in verse 2 and following to talk about the connection. He says, for example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. In most weddings, in most weddings, if you pay attention, there are at least two instances... When the husband and wife publicly declare that their marriage will be for the duration of their lives. There are at least two times in most marriage ceremonies where the husband and wife publicly declare that their marriage will be for the duration of their lives. Those come in the declaration of intent and the vows. If you come here to First Baptist Church and you watch me do a wedding, you'll notice that the wedding starts right down here. That the couple will come and the father will walk the bride or whoever will walk the bride down. down the, And I'll be standing next to the, the groom-to-be. And the, hus- the father will get here with the bride and stand. And I'll, who gives this bride to be married to this man? And mother and I or whatever. And then he'll hand her off. When he does the handoff, I'll step back. And the couple will stand before me. And when they do, I will have each of them do the I do's. Right? And in that declaration, that's the declaration of intent, their intent to enter into this marriage relationship, this covenant, legally binding relationship, the the declaration of intent says this, do you take so-and-so to be your wife or husband, to live together in holy marriage? Do you promise to love, comfort, honor, and keep them in sickness and health, and forsaking all others, be faithful to them as long as you both shall live? declaration of intent the second comes in the vows in the vows i will have the husband and the wife in turn repeat after me in the name of jesus christ i take you to be my husband or wife to have and to hold from this day forward for better or worse for richer for poorer in sickness and in health to love and to cherish only being parted by death this is my solemn vow so publicly, in, in the marriage ceremony, there are two instances where the husband and wife both affirm that this will be for the duration of their lives until death. But what you may not know is that the important thing that happens in a wedding actually happens after everybody's gone. And what that is, is they come up here, usually to this very table, and I pull out the contract, the marriage license. The, these are important promises, and it is important to be married before God and family. But the commitment process doesn't include until after the guests are dismissed. And at that time, the husband and wife return here and they do what I like to call the signing of their lives away. <laughs> they sign a legally binding document, which is filed with a courthouse that ratifies their connection as a couple. And it is the intent. That, that agreement will last for the remainder of their lives. Over and over and over again, we see in this marriage relationship, this example, that it is supposed to be, as we often say, till death do we part. Now, this was even more so true in first century culture for a woman. It was true for a man, it was expected that the husband and wife would be married for the duration of their lives, but it was even more binding for a woman. You know, the word that's translated a married woman in verse 2, that is actually not a really good rendering. It is true, she was, in fact, a married woman. But the word that is used here is hupandros, hupandros. The word literally translated means One who is under a man. One who is under a husband. See, the the marriage relationship wasn't equal. It didn't work the same way. Both in Roman, Roman and Hebrew law, a wife wasn't just bound to her husband. She was subject to him. She was subject to him. And for a woman, divorce wasn't an option. Only the death of the husband could free the wife to enter a new relationship. Tell death do we part was more than just words in the first century. And Paul uses this aspect of civil law, marriage, to describe humanity's complicated relationship with God. And more specifically, our complicated relationship with sin and the law that reveals it the law of God was meant to produce within us righteousness. But instead, it revealed our talent and our penchant for disobedience. We're connected, we're married to it. We were slaves, we saw last week, slaves to sin. And now we're seeing how how our marriage to the law also reveals that sin. And our marriage to the law is equally complicated. And here is this thing that is a good that was meant to bring about good in our lives. That's revealing this evil in us. And we, in order to be freed from this, in order to be loosed from the obligation, there needs to be a death. Well, if you remember, last week Paul already told us that we died with Christ. Thus the imagery in our baptism that we died to sin. We died to the law with Christ. And it's through our unity with Christ that we are raised to live a new life. Death ends the obligation. Death ends the obligation. Union with Christ's death and resurrection then provides for us the opportunity to enter into a more fruitful relationship. Verse 4. Paul says this, So my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. So we've got to understand something. That the release from the law, the release from an unproductive relationship, is only half of the battle. It's only half of the equation. In order for us to bear the fruit of God, we must belong to Another. Our blood bought freedom through Jesus' faith in Jesus Christ opens up the avenue for a new attachment to the risen Lord and his Spirit, so that as the passage says, our lives can bear fruit to God. Death with Christ removes from us the hopelessness of reliance upon our own righteousness through the exacting expectations of Of the law, and it frees us to live in and rely on the gracious compassion and mercy of Jesus Christ. The law was again designed to force righteousness out of us, to force righteousness out of us. Verse 5 says, For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused in us were at work, so that we bore fruit of death. The, the, the law was meant to, to force righteousness, and instead what the law did is it revealed the adulterous desires and tendencies within us. Our relationship with the law revealed our passion for ourselves. I, we have a running joke, Robin and I, and actually John Kelly, we always talk back and forth about IDWIW. Robin will be like, hey, you need to go do this. And I'm like, I-D-W-I-W. And that simply means I do what I want. And, and, and it's, it's a joke with us back and forth, but the reality, is that not the root cause of most of our sin? Is that not the root problem of humanity? That, that when God tells us this is the better way, we're like, God, I-D-W-I-W. I do what I want. And we do. More often than not, our passions The passions that are revealed are passions for ourselves. And rather than trying to force righteousness out of us, Christ produces righteousness within us through the indwelling power of his Holy Spirit. In verse 6 it says, But now by dying to what once bound us, we have been released. The weight has been lifted from us so that we serve in a new way of the Spirit and not in the old way, of the written code. It's not about obligation, but about affection. We need to understand something, and this is something that we as Christians really seem to struggle with over and over again. We we get it when we come to the Bible as far as living our lives and trying to find peace with God, but, but we need to understand it in the broader cultural setting. Morality and righteousness does not and cannot come through legislation but through transformation of the heart through a relationship with the risen Christ. We, we can try to make all the laws. we want. Listen, if a law was going to work to make people live a right life, don't you think that God would be the one to be able to design that law? I mean, if any law was going to do it, if any law was going to cut it, if any law was going to be able to produce righteousness within us, would it not be God's law? What arrogance is in us that we think that we can legislate righteousness into people? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we should ignore the reality of what's going on in the world. The reality is we do need law for order. We are a disordered world because of the reality of sin in us. But lower your expectations. If God's law couldn't cut it, then the law of these United States of America sure aren't either. My point is this, we need to be careful where we put our trust and our faith. The only hope for morality and justice to be an ever present reality in our world is the overwhelming power and presence of the Holy Spirit within the people of God bringing to bear that righteousness. So rather than trying to force and foist righteousness on people through the law, we need to present to people a better option the relationship with a loving and compassionate God who brings about righteousness from within us rather than forcing it from without. We are not freed from the need to live a right life, but we are freed from the expectation that our efforts are the only hope of obtaining salvation. When we seek to live righteous life to, a righteous life to save ourselves, we are actually serving ourselves. But when we seek to live a righteous life in response to the salvation God has provided through his grace, we are serving the God that gave us that grace. We are living into the life that he made available to us. And the reality, it's the orientation of our attention and affection that will determine the outworking of our service. Connection to Christ's death frees us to marry ourselves to a new love. It's got to be about our love for God, not about our dedication and devotion to the law. We have to understand as well that our relationship with God's law is, to say the least, complicated. Our relationship with God's law is complicated. God's law, which was meant to produce righteousness, instead reveals the existence of sin verse 7 Paul starts talking about this. he says what shall we say then is the law sinful certainly not again Paul is back to what we talked about last week where where he asks a question where the answer answer is kind of obvious is is the law because it reveals sin in us does that make it a bad thing stop just stop it no absolutely not it makes me think of of some medical technologies right the law reveals the sin within us. It makes me think about uh, about an MRI, or, or a CT scan, or an X-ray. Right? Th- those are things that none of us wants to have to have. I saw my young brother down here with the the, the cast on. Sorry for my dude, but like no one wants this to. The doctor say, Oh, we're gonna we're gonna have to get an X-ray for that. Like, generally, when you have to have one of those three procedures, it's not because, man, you are just so strong. We want to check out why you're so strong. They say you've got to do one of these three things, something is wrong. And usually, if they're going to that level, it's significantly wrong. We have a problem. So we go into these amazing machines and and they use these radio waves and magnetism through all of this uh, technological advancement to take pictures of the inside of the body. And most often, these pictures then reveal problems that can be diagnosed. They reveal breaks in bones, tears in ligaments and muscles, and the dreaded C word, cancer. Cancer. These machines reveal death and destruction within us. So does that mean we MRIs, CT scans, and x-rays, I'm against them, they are bad, they are evil, right? That's what we've got to do because they reveal something bad within us. Well, obviously we would say that and be like, well, that's just dumb. No, like we have to know there's a problem in order to fix it. None of us is eager to to have a doctor tell us we need an MRI, a CT scan, or an X-ray. But we know that they are not bad because they reveal something bad within us. They are actually very good and helpful because they reveal the problem so that we can seek a solution. This is what God's law does for us. The law provides the awareness of sin's presence and reveals the evil of our hearts, the evil that it produces. But it is itself not sinful, evil, or bad. In verse 7, the second half, Paul says, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. The first step to seeking a cure with any sickness, is understanding that you are, in fact, sick. And the law of God, God's Word, alerts us to the presence of a problem. God's law reveals the influence and impact of sin in our hearts, minds, and lives. Paul talks about, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law, for I would not have known what coveting really was if the law did not say, you shall not covet. But sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life, and I died. I've talked about this before, but we'll, we'll say it again. Uh, nothing makes me want to do something more than being told don't. Nothing makes me want to do something more than being told don't. This became very clear, and I think that's true for a lot of this. This became very clear to me one year as I was doing a float trip with the youth group. I think we were on Turkey Creek is what it's called and we were floating down on tubes and it was a cool day. Like everybody was just having a good time, hanging out in their tubes, jumping in the water periodically, getting back on the tubes and floating along and and we floated under this bridge and no big deal, right? Float under the bridge and we're floating on by when all of a sudden one of my students said, what does that sign say? So we turned around and the sign said, no jumping off the bridge under penalty of law. Well, now it's like, well, the sign is there, which means someone's done it before, right? And, and the odds are pretty good because there's not something roping it off that they probably didn't die. Which means this is just the government trying to keep me from having a good time. IDW, IW. Honestly, what the students were bringing up was already swelling in my own mind. The sign was proof positive that someone had, in fact, jumped off that bridge before. And as we surveyed the height of the bridge, and as we stopped our tube so we could plumb the depth of the water below, we realized that the odds of survival without injury were beyond high. It was absolute. Then we saw another group scale up the side before us. They saw the same sign and they went up to the top to take the leap because we knew it was safeish. By the good grace of God, we'd gone too far because no sooner had they jumped off than the rangers came pulling up and started handing out tickets. But as one scholar notes, prohibition furnishes a springboard from which sin is all too ready to take off. Paul himself says that almost exactly here. He says in verse 9, When the commandment came, sin sprang to life, and I died. Sin doesn't just reveal the existence of sin within us, but the undeniable fact that it finds its genesis internally, not externally. That the sin that comes out of us began within us. The devil never made you do it. He didn't have to. All he has to do is point you in the right direction and let you go. James tells us as much that that sin is the result of temptation giving birth to sin within us. Verse 13 of James 1 says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. You see that? That temptation may be external, but the drive to sin oh, that's all you, baby. That's all me. And I have to put that in there. It was already there. Our own efforts under the law, under the lead of the law, give birth to sin and sin to death. It's what naturally comes out of us. But God's God's law doesn't just reveal sin. It also reveals the holiness, righteousness, and goodness of God. It, it, it reveals that he is utterly holy, holy, utterly right, and utterly good. And ultimately, the law reveals the law of God reveals the presence of God in the world and his desire to restore right relationship with us. So that's a misunderstanding about the law. God didn't provide his word so he could prove how wrong we were, so he could beat us down. Sometimes that's what we think. That God lays out these unreasonable standards in order that he could show how terrible we are, which the law does, so that God could rightly then beat the snot out of us. But that's not what it is. The law was meant, the word of God is meant to be a lifeline. It's God expressing to us his desire to reach out to us, to draw him to himself. God's law then is an absolute good. God's law exposes sin and sin for the sickness that it is verse 13 Paul asks the question again he says does that which is good then become a death to me by no means nevertheless in order that sin might be recognized as sin it used what is good to bring about my death so that through the command sin might become utterly sinful Now, every time I read that this week, it seemed incredibly self-evident. As a matter of fact, when I wrote it in my notes that sin is sin, my computer was like, what is wrong with you? Why do you keep repeating this word? But let's be real with one another, shall we? There does seem to be a great deal of confusion in the world about what sin is. Can we be straight with one another? There's a lot of ambiguousness in the church about sin. Because we don't want to call sin, sin. We don't want to say that people are unrighteous. We don't want to say that people are bad. We want to say that people just, you know, everybody just makes mistakes. And, and it, it's not a, it's, it's like, it's like Bob Ross, right? They're, they're happy accidents. No, they're not. Sin is Sin. It is a vile rebellion against God's natural order and the law of God. Sin is deadly, and it is a bad thing, and sin must be called sin. It must be revealed to be utterly sinful. It must become a, a, an anathema to us that we would seek to avoid it. It's not just a good time misunderstood. Sin is sin. It is sin. You tracking with me? It is a bad thing. And God's law reveals sin to be the sickness that it is. Sin is to the spirit what cancer is to the body. A deadly product of our own making that if not removed and dealt with, will bring about destruction in and through us. And what is good in God reveals what is problematic and bad in us and the world. Again, relationship status, it's complicated. And Paul goes on to explain that complication as he moves forward. But he also reveals something, that allegiance to Jesus Christ saves us from the disorder of trying to get it right on our own. Allegiance to Jesus Christ saves us from the disorder of trying to get it right on our own. But the struggle is very real. Verse 14, Paul says, We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. Paul says the the law is spiritual. It is pneumaticos Pneumaticus. This word means it emanates from God. The law emanates from God. It is inspired by God and reveals God to us. But Paul also says, I am flesh. He essentially says, I am of myself. And I sell out to sin often, serving as its slave. Verses 15 and follow, following, Paul lays out, that he says in verse 15, I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do There's a battle going on for the allegiance of our affections, the affections of our hearts and minds. But understand something that this battle is predominantly fought on the inside, not on the outside. It is a battle with our own selves, with our own self interest, with our own self righteousness. Paul isn't focused on the issue of his behavior, Paul isn't focused here on behavior modification. It's not just I need to start doing the right thing. No, 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 no. Paul says I can't just do the right thing on my own. Rather than than just trying to change behavior, I need to evict and surgically remove the cancer of sin from inside me or else it will continue to reproduce. Paul says, As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. It's not just about fixing the behavior, but removing sin from the source. If we continue to fight on our own, as good as that fight may be at times, we will ultimately lose the struggle in our own strength. See, we don't need a new or better law, but complete deliverance and to become new ourselves. Verses 21 through 24, Paul says this, So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me prisoner to the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? We can't do the surgery ourselves. We need help evicting it and eradicating it from our lives, removing it from within so that we can be the new, better creation, so that we can serve a new, better benevolent master, and that that master can take up residence and guide us into all God has for us. Paul's words in verse 24, what a wretched, what an awful, what a terrible, what an utterly sinful man I am, reflects Isaiah when Isaiah lamented that he was ruined. The only option in light of God, the only options in light of God's word are to continue to rebel and try to do it on our own. Or to humble ourselves and to cry out to God for help. Which is what Paul does here. Who will rescue me? Somebody save me, Paul says. Then he answers his own question. Who's going to save me? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thank God we have a Savior. Thank God that the creator of the universe recreates the very inside of our heart and mind. And thank God that Christ doesn't just command us to do or be better, but that he enters the inner sanctum of our hearts and lives through the power and presence of his Holy Spirit, that we might become new and become fruitful by his power and presence within us. See, Christ doesn't just stop, as we talked a few weeks ago, with the declaration of righteousness, our justification, Christ makes us right and enables us to live a new life that produces the good fruit of the Holy Spirit through sanctification. And that work is a struggle. But even in the midst of that struggle, rather than continuing to fight against it on our own, we need to submit ourselves to the power and presence of God. We need to kneel before the Spirit of God and ask God to move and remake us that we might live the life He has for us. We don't do it on our own. We don't do it in our own strength, but we do it through the strength of God, and through the power and presence of his Holy Spirit in us. And it's through our allegiance to Jesus Christ as Lord that we are saved from the disorder and the dysfunction of trying to do it ourselves. And rather just than just doing what we want, we do as the Spirit leads. May we submit ourselves, may we humble ourselves, and may we follow as the Spirit moves and leads in our lives. That the law of God would bring about good things in our lives and order as we submit to his power and presence. Father God, I thank you so much for your goodness and your grace in our lives. God, I pray that you would make us aware of your power and presence within us. And God, that we would submit ourselves to it. Lord, that we wouldn't stubbornly stubbornly insist on trying to do it ourselves as children often do, but instead that we would turn ourselves over to your power and presence, to the leading of your spirit, that we would recognize that the only salvation from this body of death comes through the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ. Lord, may you remove from us the sin that so easily ensnares us, and Lord, may you replace our sinful broken heart with a new heart, May you lead us forward in relationship with you that we might produce good fruit by the power and presence of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.